Hey everyone, thanks for joining us here on ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. So I'm a new voice to most of y'all, and I got some big shoes or a big mic to fill following Dr. Cedric Dark. So please allow me a few seconds just to do a little introduction about me. My name's Amy Ho. I am a emergency medicine doc down here in Texas and also assistant editor on ASAP Now taking over the podcast and looking to put a bit of a spin on it. Every episode, we will chat with some authors on articles not only in the magazine, but also a little podcast-only content. Still keep a lookout for ASAP Now hitting your mailboxes soon, though. We got a lot of great content there. For this month, I am a huge fan of nerve blocks, and there's a wonderful piece on transgluteal sciatic nerve blocks. We feature UAB, University of Alabama at Birmingham's Emergency Medicine Residency Program in our residency spotlight, which I'll throw a plug out. UAB is where I got my MPH. And there is a great debrief on not only LAC, the Leadership and Advocacy Conference from last month, but also ASAP for you and what's ASAP going to do to help in physician autonomy and consolidation. We, of course, cannot cover everything, so with June being Pride Month, I am super excited for us to have a special podcast-only feature with Dr. Blair Bigham of Stanford talking LGBTQ health in the emergency department. And then we'll do another podcast celebration with Dr. Ron Stewart, who is an emergency medicine doctor and was a consultant on the show Emergency, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary. What a ways that both emergency medicine and EMS has come since then. So check out the magazine, but come chat with us here on Nowcast 2, and let's get into it. We are going to the Bay Area for ASEP 22 this fall. Make plans to join us October 1 through 4 in San Francisco for the 2022 ASEP Scientific Assembly. For me, ASEP 22 is a chance to hone my clinical skills learning from the experts all across the field. Plus, I cannot wait to finally reconnect with my emergency medicine friends across the country that I haven't seen since pre-pandemic all over the legendary San Francisco food scene. Sourdough and clam chowder, anyone? Registration is now open at asep.org forward slash ASEP22, and you can save $100 with promo code NOWCAST. That's N-O-W-C-A-S-T. See you all there. Dr. Stewart, I am so glad to have you join me today. You've got quite the background helping start what is now known as emergency medicine and EMS, and even a particular TV show to prove it. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be anywhere these days with my age creeping up on me, but but I'm honored to be here. And I I do thank you for uh, being so kind and patient with me and my technology here. (laughs) Give us a little bit background on you. I find this fascinating where you are right now, kind of what you do now, where you were, let's say, 50 years ago, and then we'll kind of move into the meat of, uh, of what we're going to talk about. Right. Well, I, uh, I'm i from uh, the province of Nova Scotia in eastern uh, northeastern Canada, and uh, I was born and raised on an island here called Cape Breton, and it's a very, a very uh, rugged rural place, and eventually worked my way uh, to the university and on to medical school. My interest originally was in the humanities, and I did an original degree in languages and in history and, of all things, medieval philosophy, French philosophy. Uh, I decided that I think I'd better get into something more practical. 
And um, so I, I went to the medical school here in Nova Scotia in Halifax, capital, and spent uh, my five years you know, for my MD degree. And then our program was two to three more years in family medicine because we primarily trained people to fam for family practice. And then you chose a residency if you wish to pursue uh, another specialty, such as surgery or, or neurosurgery, whatever. So I went on to uh, a family practice, which I had planned for for some years uh, in the North Highlands of my island here, which is quite a rugged, very rural, Scottish-like uh, landscape, and spent uh, about two or three years there. Towards the end, I had a major car accident. I hit a moose on the road in an April blizzard and oh ended goodness, up um, quite seriously injured. Then uh, I was taken to the regional hospital or the, the provincial hospital eventually and uh, suffered from a frontotemporal contusion, which uh, was fairly severe at the time. I lost, uh, I was aphasic for some months and went through a lot of speech therapy. And also I had a right hemiparesis, so I wasn't able to really walk very well. And in fact, I, I learned two things from that side of the blanket. One, I absolutely love speech therapists. Uh, I just, they were wonderful young women who were just so dedicated to make me speak again. And, but I hated physiotherapists because they made you do stuff you didn't want to do. <laughs> and you couldn't do, but they were trying to convince you you could do. And both professions I've grown to respect in, in, in many ways. And so I, Eventually went back to practice. Uh, I went back too soon. My speech wasn't very good. And in a rural area, you know, the doc who has uh, some brain problems, you know, and they're not too keen to uh, to ask his advice. And my practice uh, fell uh, towards my partner very decidedly. And so I had been planning for some years, however, to... Um, go into this sort of emergency thing you know it wasn't it was 1970 72 uh, and uh, a very uh, wonderful mentor of mine at Dalhousie Medical School who was a, a surgeon turned emergency medicine he was the first emergency physician who even resembled that and took over the emergency department and we became quite close friends and he was looking around for a, a residency program, but they didn't exist except for Cincinnati at the time. And then uh, a year later, which is when I came along, Los Angeles County, USC, established one under Gail Anderson. And um, I applied there. I don't know how I ever got there, but I did. I interviewed and got the, the one last position that was available. So I was the original class of USC, actually was the second class of USC, LA County Emergency Residency. And during that time, my speech improved quite a bit. But the wonderful thing about California, if I dare say, was they didn't really bother whether you were different. Like as long as you were doing your job and you were sort of, you know, uh, able to, to relate to people, you got along quite well, even though my speech at the time was pretty halting. 
but even so, no one took any notice, and I gradually improved, and uh, I just didn't didn't hold back. I, I I took advantage of every opportunity I could, and there were many, because we were just trying to build a department. One day, I, I was rotating on surgery, and I saw these two sort of very starchly white, you know, they're in, uh, in very clean white smocks. And they, uh, the first thing I noticed, they had bright black shiny boots. The rest of us run around in blood streaked sneakers, you know, <laughs> they had <laughs> shiny boots. And so I turned them, I said, uh, and they were sort of standing back and we were you know, admitting patients in a surgery board. I mean, it was just a, a madhouse. I said, who, who are you? You know, well, what do you do here? And they said, well, we're paramedics. And I said, well, what's a paramedic? And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you actually ended up a director for EMS at the time, like very quickly, right? Exactly. That's how desperate people were in those days <laughs> to get people who had at least an interest. And I then, you know, had some training. I mean, I, I, I didn't know pretty well a lot of stuff that, to handle major stuff. And so I was appointed the first medical director of paramedic training for the county, uh, which was a program started by Drs. Crowley and Lewis at Harbor General. And so I had no idea particularly what the curriculum was. So I decided I would go and find out what they knew when they came out of the fire training. You know, they had fire academy. And so I went to attend classes there to find out. This is in the middle of the residency and everything else. I, I went there to, to find out, well, what base could I use to kind of convey some of these medical you know, concepts? And they were talking about pumps and pipes and resistance and pressures and that was cardiovascular anatomy it just had to be translated to different words but we didn't have any text so i had to write the textbook and i sat down three two three in the morning and tried to write a textbook and um, we had a curriculum developed from there which up to that time was very heavily cardiology i mean there were 80 percent was cardiology training uh, even though that was a very small part of the responses they would get. Were you in residency during all of this? No, I was just finishing up my residency. So it would have been about six months I had to go. I was staying on staff there. And this was the real reason I stayed on the staff, although I was very taken with uh, L.A. County because of the experience one could get. And I, I've never really left there. I mean, I, 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 the, the residents with me were so good. They were so kind and they were wonderful people. And we were right in the middle of terrible urban problems with violence and knife and gun club and all the rest of it. And so yeah. I, I stuck around and did my best to establish paramedic training as, as a credible alternative career path. And that was really what started it all until one day I got a call from the University of Pittsburgh from one of the gurus that I had practically worshipped over the years. And he was really responsible for CPR as we know it in public. And that was Peter Saffer. He was a researcher at, at uh, Baltimore City Hospital and demonstrated that mouth-to-mouth -mouth ventilation 
and was the primary way we could resuscitate people with ventilation. They were using manual methods, you know, the back pressure arm lift kind of thing. And and he compared them by uh, anesthetizing eight surgical residents and paralyzing with curare and with succinylcholine, actually, and then attempting to ventilate them with the various methods and found very quickly that in order to salvage them from the experiment, he had to start mouth to mouth rather than back pressure arm lift. So he was my mentor. He literally hired me at the University of Pittsburgh, and I went there to establish what I thought would be a, a, an emergency department or, or, or some semblance of that, which they did not have at, at the university, and was told very clearly by the dean that they wouldn't accept emergency medicine. It wasn't especially, really shouldn't be especially, so don't really think about that. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, three weeks later, a major event occurred that really decided my future and the future of a lot of programs, I think. Uh, we had uh, workmen trapped atop a bridge that they were demolishing, and he had his both legs caught when he uh, cut the strut that brought the two portions of the bridge together and crushed his lower extremity below the knee. <laughs> I was asked to go to the scene, and fortunately, I had had a lot of field training in LA. However, I did not like heights very well. So 130 feet above the river, we had to decide to do a disarticulation of his right leg. And we did that after three hours up there, we finished and we salvaged him. He was safe. We brought him to the OR. He had the proper amputation done with the prosthesis. And the next day, all Hades broke loose because it appeared on every major newspaper and every newscast, major newscast in the United States carried it, as well as in Canada. My parents saw it on television here on the CBC. Didn't know it was me hanging (laughs) from that ladder. Yeah, were they proud or horrified? (laughs) They just thought, well, we think that he's over there somewhere, you know, and uh, little (laughs) did they know it, I was hanging literally in terror from the ladder. In any event, everything changed after that because within a day, because of the media and the publicity, everyone knew who I was. Everyone knew what a paramedic was. Up until that time, they could confuse them with firemen and sometimes police and so on. There was no difference, but after that, things changed. I really used that and, again, used the media Uh, And the recognition that this was a different kind of a a specialty, it was a different kind of a thing, and that physicians should be trained in this specialty. And within, within six months, we had an institute established because every one of those hospitals I approached, and I approached 14 of them, gave me about 150,000 each to start this new program and so we were off and running and that changed everything that changed everything i know and it's really the beginning of ems like it's fascinating that you went you know as this canadian in a moose accident starting (laughs) ems and really la and pittsburgh which to this day are huge ems programs but what's really interesting i think is a little bit of your background in medical humanities because 
I mean, the ASAP article we did on you is all about how you got involved with the television series Emergency, which is all around that same time. So tell yes. us about that. Well, in L.A., uh, the, the, the show had started just about six months before I came to Los Angeles, the show Emergency, which was the brainchild of a, uh, a guy by the name of Jack Webb. He was a producer, a very, very influential producer whose sidekick was a guy by the name of Bob Senator. They had some very successful programs. I think one was Dragnet. It was a police show, very simplistic sort of formula, but very popular in the 50s. They followed that up with another police show called Adam 12 or something. And, and that was the same thing, you know, pretty predictable kind of a formula for success in TV at the time. But then Bob Senator found out about this this paramedic thing that they were doing at Harbor General as a <laughs> first as a as a demonstration project trying to replicate the work of the Irish team the Northern Irish team of uh, Pantridge and Gettys to show that you could resuscitate people from cardiac arrest if yeah, you defibrillated yeah. them quickly and so they were trying to, to, to duplicate this. In any event, Bob Senator got into this really, really in, in a big way because he was always looking for new storylines. And he thought this medical thing, because they had just had a couple of successful ones. Uh, Dr. Kildare was one of them that was on TV early on and so on. And so they translated that in-hospital kind of medical stuff and melodrama, basically, into the streets uh, and based on that single program that was just an experiment it wasn't even it was only in an area around the lax or around the airport because i was the only person involved the only physician that was full-time involved in this stuff by then uh, i got asked well i was more or less told by the department that i had to do this was to uh, advise them on some technical matters, but mostly for storylines, you know, sort of straight from the files kind of thing. And so that was my role was to occasionally be on set if there was a medical procedure being done. But most of the procedures were rescue. And so the paramedics were already on scene all the time. So I was only there when a medical procedure would be required to be sort of and they never did quite get it right. People didn't know the difference, and it didn't matter. The medical people knew the difference, and they would get irate letters if they made any obvious mistakes. So the idea was not to show anything on camera that was too detailed, medically speaking. And I was happy with that because it made my job easier anyway. <laughs> but I also got the job, which I didn't want, to answer any fan mail that came through that had any medical context at all. As I said in the article with ASAP, uh, I quit. I didn't want to do this because uh, it wasn't very common to get these questions, medically uh, medical questions. Uh, they were usually focused on the, the storylines and on the actors themselves. But I, uh, I was told I had to do this, so I did <laughs> until I got this, uh, and I think I mentioned this, that I got this uh, letter that told me that this poor guy had saved his granny from death 
because of that CPR he, he saw on emergency. But there was one problem. She kept getting up. And I thought, <laughs> I'm out of here. I am out of here. I am not yeah, going but to I mean, In a lot of ways, you get to shape real life in media. And media ends up shaping real life for people that aren't oh. in the field, which is why narrative medicine is so interesting. I'll, t- I'll tell you, I learned I, and I admitted to myself that looking down my academic medical nose at what they were doing on the screen, and by the way, I had never owned a television in LA. I never watched television, I never had a television in LA. Uh, but what they were portraying, I thought was just sort of melodrama. It wasn't it really, I looked down on it. I, I had the, the actors were really good friends of mine, but I kept joking with them that, you know, you don't, I used to have to travel with them when they would be asked to speak at EHS conferences, which they did all the time. And I would have to go and be with them, sort of write a speech or help, you know, whatever. And uh, and I, by that time, I was very good friends with them. And, um, and but it was, it was, it was really, it was really crazy. And I, I then suddenly realized, wait a minute, this thing is taking off. This, this is sweeping the country, if you could say that. <laughs> and, and every little hamlet would want a paramedic unit or a paramedic system. And, and then I finally, after years, recognized that media is so important to what we do as physicians, too, because if we're judged very largely by what people see and what they understand as the role of the physician and as the role of the specialty. And so it was that show that it took me years to realize what they had accomplished. They didn't mean to accomplish that necessarily. They meant to be respectful of of the people that uh, the actors were portraying they were always very respectful of the, of the physician of the paramedics of the of the patients but but they were there to sell you know sell the show you know they were there to yeah. make money uh, but in doing so they really pushed our specialty they didn't know they were doing it I was too stupid to know they were doing it. I was too wrapped up in academics and other things. But I'll tell you, I now know an element that makes the difference. If we can't sell a program, and I think this COVID-19, this really demonstrates if you can't convince people, uh, you know, through media and through whatever you have to do, that what is what you're doing medically is the right thing to do. You might as well pack your little black bag and go home because it just won't work as well. And only recently we we, we had plans to have a dinner in in uh, Hollywood on the on the 50th anniversary a couple of months ago, and I couldn't go because I couldn't cross the border. We were shut down really heavily here in Canada, so I I couldn't go to the, this dinner. And I'm not sure they did have it to celebrate it. I was ready to celebrate the show finally after 50 years because I was convinced of what it had done for the specialty. It's been 50 years of the television show Emergency. It's been about 50 years of emergency medicine as just a field. It's probably been about 50 years of just the advent 
of EMS. And, you know, you've really lived through all of it. Closing words for our listeners who are everything from pre-med starting off to people like you who have been in the field for decades. Like, how has... ER, ER, EMS, EMS, even media's portrayal of medicine changed. And any last words for ER doctors? Well, medicine has changed, of course. It's changed technically, and the technology is much different. Um, And also, emergency medicine has changed. If I were to wish for something more, is that the public would know a little bit more about what goes on in an emergency department in, in respect to the importance of what occurs and in the importance of, of having good people do this job, which is so urgently needed when you need them. Uh, and I'm not sure people really understand that as well as they they would. I, I know that ER followed this and, and I even, even hate the term ER, emergency room. We're not a room, you know. We're a lot of rooms. Or many, many, many rooms. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And we have many things going on in those many rooms. But this is even the case with paramedics in some, certainly in our province, even though we have a very sophisticated system. And I was given the opportunity to do that as uh, Minister of Health for the province um, back in the 90s. So um, I would say that that this specialty is the most exciting and in, in, in a real, in a solid way, not exciting as in frivolous, but exciting and, and very, very uh, satisfying because you can make a difference in the most crucial um, problems that, that people will face. And I don't think there's another specialty that, that you could make such a big a big difference and such an influence in what the what the journey of that patient is through the healthcare system than you would uh, if you were an emergency physician or a paramedic or early on in their care. Nothing beats that. I mean, granted, it, it's tiring and we get tired and, and we're up late and we, we don't get sleep and all the rest of it. But when push comes to shove, you could make a difference that that patient would never have realized until suddenly when they're well and able to you know function again or if it doesn't work out really making a difference in how the family or the loved ones grieve the loss this is the greatest privilege in emergency medicine definitely uh, like and, we're there when you need to, we're, we're there, there when people need us. Absolutely. We're there when they don't know they need us. Absolutely. And, you know, Brian Zink, he said it anywhere, anytime, any place, we're there. And that, that, I think every medical student who is interested in this area of care and in this specialty should read Brian's book, read uh, that book, because he really tells it all. Dr. Stewart, we so appreciate your time, your stories. There's a lot to unpack here. A lot has changed, and it's wonderful to hear about how it really all started. So I want to say thank you again for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me as a guest. It's a great privilege. And if you're ever north of the border, you better come and see me. 
Okay. <laughs> and watch out for some moose. <laughs> and definitely that. It is Pride Month. We actually met uh, like a few years ago, I feel like. And then I've been Every following you on Twitter since. <laughs> Everything pre-pandemic feels so long ago. <laughs> yes, it's like eternity. So we've met, like I said, many years ago. I've been following your career. I think you've been such an amazing advocate from the ER about LGBTQ health issues. So I wanted to first just open, let you introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background on what you're doing now, how you got involved, that sort of thing. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, as a gay physician, it's so cool to see everybody come together during Pride Month um, and all the extra recognition and advocacy that happens around LGBT people, particularly uh, who are often marginalized and end up needing healthcare resources, but maybe don't always have the best paths or access to get that healthcare. It's just such a great opportunity to make sure that everyone who needs healthcare gets great healthcare. My journey uh, in emergency medicine started as a paramedic, or even before that as a lifeguard. And I worked my way through the ranks and ended up having this longing to spend more time with my patients. And on the ambulance, you just don't get that. So I became an emergency doctor and again, sort of felt that same craving. And so I'm just wrapping up an ICU fellowship in California. Uh, and then I'm going to return to Canada and split my time between the ER and the ICU in Toronto, which has uh, a really large gay population, a really large bisexual and transgender population. Um, and so I'm really excited to put the metal to the metal and get things moving to bring equity uh, to this really marginalized group of people. And what a great month to have this ability to highlight those disparities that we have. Yeah, and that's awesome because you have such like the spectrum of care from like, you know, kind of the EMS land now all the way to like critical care, which is about as like in depth on the hospital side as you can get. And what really caught me about you was um, a couple things. So one, one of our ASAP partners had sent me uh, the almost of EM CME that you were doing earlier about LGBTQ health. And then yeah. I also saw an article from you about, it's called LGBTQ and health, a failure of medical education. And I thought yes. we are definitely, I'm sure like in Canada and also in the US, this is very congruent, I think pretty deficient on LGBTQ health issues. So from your expertise, what are the things that, you know, like the run-of-the-mill ER doc should know about the super high-risk population? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that the training we get in this population is deficient. And so nobody should feel judged or like they're, you know, insufficient just because anything they learn today on this podcast or anything that they learn over time seems new to them. Our training systems, our residency programs, our uh, ongoing professional development don't focus on this population. So in March 2020, I didn't know anything about COVID. Nobody did. It was a new disease. And of course, we saw so much of it that now we're all COVID experts and treating uh, patients in this community is similar. If you haven't had any training, if you hadn't had any exposure, you can't be expected to nail every interaction. It takes time to develop. And this is the type of area that 
changes somewhat frequently. The language around it changes. And so it's hard to keep up. And so I want everyone just to sort of give themselves a break. This is a really hard area to learn because it's just not something that we're taught. And so with that in mind, there are, I think, sort of three highlights that we can give emergency physicians during Pride Month. And the first is to talk about something that I find really hard to talk about, but I think is really important to talk about. And that is suicide ideation and suicide attempts and suicide completions in this population. And this happens particularly uh, in an unsettlingly high frequency uh, in youth. We have new data that shows that transgendered youth but around the ages of 15 to 17 are seven and a half times more likely to have suicidal intent and suicidal completion than cisgendered teenagers. So that is a huge risk factor for boys who like boys and girls who like girls, or for people who identify as liking more than one gender, those people are also at increased risk of uh, either completing suicide or thinking about suicide. And this is a really scary statistic, but about 50% of people who complete suicide in this population won't have any mental health history. Their suicide is like the first time people have insight into their struggles. And so this is a population to keep your eye out for and to really lean into when they come into the emergency department with a mental health complaint or with a situational crisis is just to lean into this because this population is at extremely high risk of harm from suicide or suicide attempt. That really scares me about this population. The reasons are highly variable, but often come down to a lack of support, either at school or at home, where kids just don't feel like they're accepted. They don't feel that they're normal. And sadly, that leads to suicide. So another topic that I think is really important is to know that a lot of people in the LGBT and particularly the transgender community avoid coming to the emergency department. If they're having chest pain, if they're having fever, if they're having shortness of breath, they are less likely to come for help than other people. Now, when emergency departments are flooded these days like they are now, you kind of go, oh, thank goodness. But, you know, (laughs) if somebody thinks they should present to an emergency department, I want them to present to an emergency department. We can't expect patients to Google all of their potential symptoms and illnesses. That's our job as emergency physicians is to find out if they're having something life-threatening going on. So it really kind of saddens me to know that this population feels that the ER isn't a safe place for them. And one of the things that really makes a transgender person feel like they're not welcome is dead naming. And dead naming is using their previous gender or their previous name to identify them. Now, my emergency department struggles with this because in EPIC, which is the system that we use, and there's Mm -hmm. tons of different electronic records, often the name on the health card or the name on the insurance document or the name on your driver's license is the name that ends up in the computer. Yeah, like with registration. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's really hard to flag that. And some registration clerks or triage teams might not be fully attuned to making sure we're using preferred pronouns and preferred names and not dead naming people. And that's an easy thing that we can do. And I can't tell you the number of times I've had to apologize to people and say, I'm sure you've been called by your previous name. I've noticed in the computer that it's wrong, and I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. I'm going to do everything I can to get that fixed. And then I I can walk my 
clerks through how to change that in Epic if they're not already aware. So one thing that every Emerge doc can do right now is to go and figure out in your EMR, how do you change the name to a preferred name, a preferred pronoun? And many softwares do have a way to do that easily. But you should know that so that you can support your team and that you can support transgendered people who present to the emergency department. I think that's a really easy thing that we can do that helps make this area more welcoming. And I'll give you a third point. And I always hesitate to bring up sexually transmitted infections in the LGBT population, but I'm going to do that because even though being gay is not a risk factor for an STI, and I'll explain that more in a second, we know that STIs are on the rise in multiple populations, particularly syphilis, gonorrhea, and in some cities, HIV. Mm -hmm. So you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, epidemiologically, for example, gay men uh, compared to straight men are much more likely to have an STI. But what I want to do is take the connection away from the identity of being gay and connect it to the behavior that increases risk. So yeah. men who have sex with men who don't use protection or who have multiple partners are at increased risk for STI. The same way men who have sex with women with multiple partners who don't use condoms are at increased risk for STI. And so I just think it's important for people to have that distinction when we're talking about risk factors. And instead of saying, oh, you're gay, we should do a GNC on you, say, are you engaging in behavior that increases your risk of GNC or of HIV or of syphilis? And when you're presented with somebody who is at risk, I want you to put syphilis higher up on your differential because I hate to use the word skyrocketing, but it really is rapidly rising. And so I just think it's something for emergency doctors to have in mind because, you know, syphilis is that great masquerader. It can present as almost anything. And a lot of LGBT people, they don't have great access to primary care they might not have early interventions, and you might actually be the one diagnosing secondary syphilis in some of the more marginalized populations who may end up in an emergency department because they have nowhere else to go. So I think those are my top three tips, Amy. Number one, keep an eye out for suicidality and suicide risk. It's very, very high in the LGBT population. Be really aware of dead naming and try to make your department as welcoming as possible to this group. They avoid us. They don't come to us for help because they don't feel welcome. And in men who have sex with men who have increased risk factors, that is behaviorally, they're doing things that increases the risk for STIs, throw syphilis higher up on your list, never forget about HIV testing, and always be mindful of the rise of gonococcal disease, especially disseminated gonococcus, which I've picked up a couple of times this year in the ER, which is kind of scary and wild. Yeah, definitely. Wild, like, that's an incredible review. I feel like you go into not only the health issues, but also, you know, some issues on the ER side of not stereotyping. Like, I love what you say about not associating STIs with gayness, but associating it with behaviors. These are, I think, incredibly helpful. Any last takeaway you want listeners to walk away with? Yeah, I think the last thing I would say is that we're talking a lot about patients today, but also think about your colleagues within the hospital who identify in the LGBT community. Hospitals aren't always a safe space for LGBT people. And so I'm walking around today wearing my rainbow mask and there's probably rainbow flags or pins or stickers at your hospital. If you can slap one of those onto your ID badge or onto your sweater or onto your scrubs, what it does is it just sends a signal that says, 
I know that there are LGBT people around me and it's signaling to people that you're welcoming. And even though you might think, oh, well, this hospital is, you know, we're so liberal, we're such a safe space, we respect everybody, you know, it's LGBT Pride Month, we have rainbows everywhere. It's still really important to personally signal that you're there for the conversation and the inclusion that everyone who identifies as LGBT uh, so desperately seeks. Absolutely. I know I think just that little sign of solidarity probably means something to someone who might have had a whole lifetime of being stereotyped against. Absolutely. Totally. And especially for newer physicians, newer nurses, maybe residents or medical students, they may still be kind of sorting out their own sexuality or or how their sexuality can be displayed in a new hospital setting where everyone's feeling very judged when they start training. And so those little signals really go a long way. I always say that being gay is like always being around a humming fluorescent light. Like, you know, those really annoying lights that are about to die and they're just like, yeah. And being, you know, every time you see somebody new, there's this, you're like, Oh my God, is is it going to be okay that I'm gay? You know, should I change my mannerisms, change my voice? You know, those types of things still pop into a lot of minds of people in the LGBT community right or wrong, you know, there's a long history of just not being accepted or being discriminated against. And so we do still need those positive vibes from people. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Blair, I wanted to close really quickly with, like I alluded to, I met you, you know, several years ago, have found you to be a wealth of knowledge on just like social media. How can uh, some of our listeners find you? Oh, sure. Yeah. So you can check me out on Twitter or Instagram at Blair Bigham, or you can head over to my website, BlairBigham.com. My last name is spelled B-I-G-H-A-M, Big Ham, like large pig. And then really exciting, Amy, if I can give a plug for myself, I've got my first book coming out in September called Death Interrupted. I think eMERGE nurses, eMERGE doctors would really resonate with it. Just about how technology has sort of taken over the dying process, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the worst. Ooh, we should definitely talk more about that. Oh, I would love to. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks so much, Amy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Again, that's Dr. Blair Bigham, currently a Stanford by way of Canada. And we, again, so appreciate your time spending with us talking a little bit about LGBTQ health issues. My pleasure. I hope we get to meet in person again soon. I hope you all enjoyed those conversations. We will certainly have more coming for you. For July issue of ASAP Now, we've got some great articles lined up already. One on simulation and the rural ER doc. We got content on a hot topic on everyone's mind, workforce numbers in emergency medicine, and what is going on with attrition and forecasting a supply of doctors. And of course, with recent national events, we will be looking at doing a deeper dive into some of those very controversial and very tragic topics. So keep tuning in with us on Nowcast. We'll have some content continue to grow and evolve, and we would love to hear from you. Tweet us if you got an idea at ASEPNOW, that's A-C-E-P-N-O-W, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho, A-M-Y-F-A-I-T-H-H-O. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. So thanks, y'all. See you next time.